Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of, Israel, of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Thanks, David. Do you want to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? I think it's on page 1015. Uh, my name is Paul, if I haven't met you. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I want us to prepare your hearts and your minds to hear this most amazing passage of Scripture tonight. Here's our verse. It's on the screen, Colossians 1, verse 18. So that in everything, Christ might have the supremacy. In everything, Christ might have the supremacy. That's our theme for tonight, the, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the preeminence of Christ, the, the glory of Christ, Christ being first over all things and in all things. Do you believe that? In 1835, the great British preacher Charles Simeon climbed the steps to the pulpit of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge and took this one verse as his text, in everything Christ might have the supremacy. And Simeon added, and Christ must have it. And Christ will have it, and Christ shall have it. It's reported Simeon, quote, rose in height as his soul straightened his body to bear witness to the majesty and the glory of his Redeemer. And church, I want to say to you tonight that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, he must have the supremacy in your life. He must have the supremacy in this church and he must have the supremacy in your life. He must be first in your home life, in your work life, in your church life, in your thought life, in your words, your actions, your friendships, your hobbies, your plans. Christ must be first because he is supreme. He's preeminent. And he will have it and he shall have it. Friends, you do not need anything more than Jesus in your life. But what all of us need in this room tonight is more of Jesus. We need a deeper, higher, more profound understanding of just who Jesus is. And our passage tonight is like this, this purple passage, this great high Christology of the Bible that just blows our mind and say, wow, I never knew that Jesus was so glorious. As I prepared this week, this passage really showed me how, how shallow and how small and how safe my view of Jesus is. And maybe yours is too. Now here's the problem. If you've got a safe, shallow, small view of Jesus... You are missing out, and you are settling 
for less than best. Because God in his majesty and pleasure, God wants this this intimate, this mind-blowing, incredible relationship with Jesus Christ. So please don't settle for anything less than that. I meet Christians who are dissatisfied, always grumbling, always whinging. They haven't got this, they haven't got that. But they've shifted their focus away from Jesus. Or I meet Christians who are unsure, doubting whether they're really forgiven, and they've shifted their focus away from Jesus. Or I meet Christians who are undiscerning. They've been tossed around by every latest fad or latest teaching, but they've shifted away from Jesus. Or I meet Christians, many Christians, who are so stagnant in their Christian life, they've just stopped growing because they've stopped dwelling on who Jesus is. Or perhaps worst of all, I've met Christians who are just satisfied. At best, Jesus is someone to pray with, and at worst, he's just a Sunday hobby. Or maybe a joyless Christian, all intellectual, all cerebral, but no heartfelt worship. If you are dissatisfied, undiscerning, if you're unsure, if you are joyless, it's because you have a small view of Jesus, a shallow view of Jesus. Some of us here have this very childlike faith. All we think of is the baby Jesus in the manger 2,000 years ago or the man Jesus Christ on the cross, and he is far bigger than that. So your view of Jesus, it cannot remain like a drop of water. It needs to be as vast as an ocean. It's a bit like when you see those tourists who have they've spent thousands of dollars flying to Sydney and they're walking over the Harbour Bridge and they walk across the most beautiful bridge in the world with the most glorious opera house and the most glorious harbour and the most stunning views and you get these tourists who take out their phone and take one photograph and then go back looking at Facebook. You're like, open your eyes, just dwell and just see how beautiful this is. And I want to say, church, open your eyes to how beautiful Jesus is, how glorious he is, how magnificent he is. Do not settle for a safe, small, shallow view of Jesus. Because if you do, you are missing out. So we need to hear this passage tonight and let the Spirit of God blow our minds with who the Son of God really is. These verses we're about to have read, they are either a hymn or a early confessional creed but they're not written to impress us and they're not written just to stuff our heads with theology theology is never the end point but worship is theology always leads to this worship of Jesus and Paul here is just worshipping he's saying wow Jesus he's adoring, praising and standing in awe of how glorious and supreme and preeminent Jesus is and that is my one goal tonight to leave here to send you away with your minds just stretched your hearts warmed and your whole being wanting to worship and adore Jesus as the preeminent one in your life so you ready to hear it? Ali do you want to read Colossians 1? Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Isn't that stunning? Christ is supreme preeminent first over all. He's Lord of all. Uh, Paul starts with the most mind-blowing statement in verse 15. Look at it with me. The Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son is the image, not an image, but the image of the invisible God. That is mind-blowing. God is invisible. In fact, the Old Testament, we're told that no one can see God's face and live. He's too holy, he's too pure, he's too glorious. No one's ever seen God. But then the Son steps into the world, the image of the invisible God. It's how John begins his gospel, John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth, no one's ever seen God, says John. But Jesus, the Son, who's at the Father's side, has made him known, has revealed God, has exegeted God. It's extraordinary. The invisible God becomes visible through his Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, how can Jesus do that? The answer is that word image in verse 15. The word image, the Greek word is icon. You get the English word icon from it. An icon is a representation. So I could pull out a coin. I could, I could show you on every coin the, the picture of, of the, the Queen of Australia, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. And it's her head. It represents her. But that's not the real meaning of the word image. It's, it's more a manifestation. So as Jesus steps into his world, we get a manifestation of, of the invisible God. He, he reveals God's nature and God's character perfectly. So in Jesus, you see God's wisdom and you see God's power, his compassion, his righteous anger, his beauty, his glory. And I hope you've grasped that, that that Jesus didn't just talk about God. He lived, breathed, revealed the invisible God because he is God. That's what Jesus says in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
And we sing about it every Christmas, don't we? Hark the herald. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Hail the God who takes on flesh. If you're here tonight and you're thinking, I just don't know God. There is no other place to start than Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight saying, I want to know God better, keep going back to Jesus. Just plumb the depths of who Jesus is. Are you ready? Are you ready to see who Jesus is? Number one, he is supreme over creation. He is preeminent. He's first over the whole of creation because he made it all. Verse 15 again. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now Paul is not saying in verse 15 that, that Jesus was the first of all created being. That's a heresy. He is not saying he's like the eldest child but one of many created beings. There's a heresy that's still being peddled today. It's called the Arian heresy. It's still peddled today through the Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that Jesus is just a created being. No, no, that word firstborn, it means rank, it means status, it means dignity, it means inheritance. So he's supreme over creation. Let me tell you why. Uh, He is before creation. You see that in verse 17? He, Jesus, is before all things. That's extraordinary. Jesus is eternal. You can never say there was a time when Jesus was not. He's always existed. He's pre-existent. He's eternal. You ever read the four Gospels? And they all start differently, don't they? Mark's Gospel starts with the, the ministry of Jesus. And Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel all start with the birth of Jesus. But John, in his glorious wisdom, he takes you way back in time and says, in the beginning was the word. Turn turn the clock back as far as you possibly can. And there was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. So how foolish we are to limit Jesus to this baby in a manger. So 2,000 years ago, God thought, oh, I know, I'll just create someone called Jesus. He's always existed and please don't ask what happened before Jesus. It's a futile question. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. How big is your Jesus? He's before creation. He's the agent of creation or the, the instrument of creation. I think I've been a Christian for about five years before I realized this, that it was through Jesus that everything was made. You ever read Genesis and the creation accounts? No. And God said... Let there be light. And God said, let there be water. And God said, let there be birds. And God said, let there be animals. And God speaks his creation into existence. It's through God's word that the world is created. And who is that word? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Through him, through Jesus, all things were made, says John. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That is what Paul is saying here. Verse 16 For in Jesus, or literally by Jesus, all things were created. Everything. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things. Comprehensive, exhaustive, all things have been created through Jesus. He's the agent, he's the means, he's the instrument. And he did it from nothing, ex nihilo. You ever seen a, a magician uh, pull a, a rabbit out of a hat? You go, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> but there was no hat at creation. 
There was nothing. He created from nothing. That's how powerful he is. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he brought everything to existence by his powerful hand. Even the things that we can't understand or can't comprehend, that's the the thrones and the powers and the rulers and the authorities, all these heavenly realms and these angelic beings and the evil realm that just spins our head. We don't understand it, but he made it all. Your Lord Jesus Christ, he made everything from man to mouse. From the biggest elephant to the smallest amoeba, from the most complex solar system to the most elementary electron and neutron. He made it all. Now stretch your minds, look around. I think all of us actually need to go down to the harbour tonight. After church, just go and stand by the harbour and just look. Look at the beauty of the ocean. Look at, look at the stars and the sky. Look at the moon. Get up tomorrow morning and see the sunset and go, wow, he made all of that. 800,000 catalogued insects, he made each one of them. On a clearest of night with a naked eye, you can see 2,500 stars, which is 0.0000000000001% of everything that he made. Now, how big is your Jesus? How big is he? Call it what you want, universal sovereignty, cosmic authority. He's just the boss of everything because it all belongs to Jesus. Now, this is where it gets personal. If he created everything, that means he created you. He created you perfectly. You are unique, you are beautiful, you are beautifully crafted by the Lord Jesus Christ. Go home tonight, look in the mirror and say, I'm beautifully, uniquely made by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's before creation, he's the agent of creation, he's the goal of creation. See those last two words in verse 16? All things have been created through Jesus and, what does he say? Verse 16, for Jesus, for his glory, for his praise. The supreme reason why all things were created was for Jesus' glory, for Jesus' pleasure. It's what Romans 13 says, from him, through him, and to him are all things, and to him be the glory. Now that has profound implications. I could preach a whole sermon on this. Despite what society says and despite what the world tries to tell you, this creation did not exist for you. The world doesn't exist for you. This world does not revolve around us. This world exists for the glory and the praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you've grasped that, the purpose of our existence is to honour him and to glorify him then serving the Lord Jesus Christ is the most logical, natural thing to do, isn't it? It gets bigger. He's not just before creation, the agent of creation. He's not just the goal of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. Christ holds it all together. He's the architect, the builder, the goal, and the manager. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. He is the glue that keeps this universe functioning. You ever heard of a, a philosophy called deism? It's a heresy. Deism is basically that, that God created this universe and once he'd finished creating, he just wandered off, put his feet up and just did other stuff. He created it, but he doesn't care for it. That is not the God of the Bible. 
He doesn't like wind up a clock and just let it tick. Our God, the Trinitarian God of the Bible, he is actively involved to sustain, maintain, and keep his creation going. A famous scientist said this, if Jesus decided to let go, the entire universe would disintegrate. What holds this universe together is not an idea or a virtue, it's the person of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei, gravity would cease to work, and planets would not stay in their orbit. Do you believe that? Without Jesus keeping his world spinning at the right temperature, the right angle, the right speed, we just wouldn't exist. Now let me say here, I know it's a messed up world, and I know this world is groaning, but it doesn't mean that Jesus has taken his hands off. I love the story of the South American company that ordered this really, really impressive printer, this multi-purpose printer. And they had it for a few months, and then it broke down, and no one could fix it. And so they contacted the, the company in the US of A and said, you've got to send someone down to fix our printer. And so they sent this young guy who was very young, and he spoke no Spanish. And the South American company said, we don't want him. He's too young. He doesn't speak our language. And the US company said this, he's the best person to send because this young man who doesn't speak Spanish actually designed that printer, and I think he knows best. And when you believe that Jesus designed this world, you trust him. He does know best. And if he can hold the stars and the moon and the, and the sun and the water in his hand, doesn't that mean that he knows how to hold you in his hand? Now, our kids sing this in kids' church. He's got the whole world in his hands, and he has. Sustaining it all, holding it all together. He's got you and me in his hands. He has. That is a huge comfort The Lord Jesus Christ, he cares for you. He's our strength, our refuge, and ever-present help in times of trouble. He's our shepherd, our king, and we shall not be in want. That's our Lord Jesus. He's so glorious, and we owe everything to him because he's supreme over his creation. We're just scratching the surface. Do you want to go deeper? He's supreme over creation. He's supreme over his church. I love the way that Paul takes us from from creation to church, from the galaxies to the gatherings. Verse 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. That that idea of the body is how Paul describes his church. Different people, different roles, different gifts, but one head. And he's not talking about just local gatherings like Kiribati or Neutral Bay. The universal church, the worldwide church, the Catholic church has one head. And that head is not the archbishop, it's not the pope, it's not the queen, it's not me, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if you were just a body, but you had no head? We'd look kind of weird, wouldn't we? Wandering around with headless bodies. It's not just that we'd look weird, we'd actually actually cease to exist. Because you need a head for a functioning body. Your bodies don't work without a head. And a church without Jesus Christ is not a church. And I say that because in many churches you go to today, uh, you seem to think it's all about the church. Join our church, sign up for our church, serve at our church, give to our church. It's not our church, it's Christ's church. He's the head of his church, not me, not you. And if you don't like something in the church that Jesus said we should do, Who are we to question him? Because he is the boss. He is the ruler. He has authority. 
Why is he head of the church? It's pretty obvious in verse 18. He's head of the church because he is the one who actually started the church. In verse 18, he is the beginning. He decided to form the church. It was his idea. It's not a man-made institution. How did he do it, verse 18? Through his resurrection. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He is the first human being who is fully human and fully God, who has come back to life never to die again. He's the first one to defeat death and to crush the grave. He's the first one with his indestructible, immortal resurrection bodies, and our resurrection bodies will come out of his resurrection body. I did that funeral on Wednesday for the 29-year-old boy who battled leukemia for 11 years, is now in glory with a new resurrection body. And the resurrection changes everything. It doesn't fix everything. Let's not pretend it fixes everything and deals with all the hurts, but it does change everything. And we sit here today as a little glimpse, a little foretaste of the heavenly glory with the resurrection bodies. So what does it mean for Jesus to be head of his church? He's the boss, he's the ruler, he has authority. But if he's our head, we've got to be totally dependent on him, haven't we? I think the prayer life of our church will reflect whether we really believe that he's head of this church. There's a danger in many churches, perhaps this church. Great programs, great social events, but where's Jesus? Or perhaps another danger is churches built on a personality rather than on Christ. Churches built on, on, on a leader who wants to be the boss. They're not the boss, Christ is the boss. Churches built around personalities or overpowerful leaders, they are cults, they're not churches. So when I preach, keep asking, is Paul pointing me to Jesus or himself? Look at your leaders, are they pointing to Christ or themselves? See, see Jesus is, is wonderful, isn't he? He is supreme over creation, he is supreme over his church. And we're supposed to have this glorious picture of Christ preeminent, Christ on his throne. Now here is the problem. Even though Jesus is rightfully on his throne, there are pretenders to that throne in front of me tonight. Calvin said this, there is no one who doesn't carry within themselves some opinion of their own preeminence. And he's right. Christ is supreme, but in each one of us, there's a little bit of us that wants to be in charge or thinks that we are somebody's. That's why we teach our kids to think of other people or teach our kids to share. And we keep it under wrap, but it's called pride. Ever heard of the, or seen the cartoon uh, Garfield or that cat? Anyone seen those cartoons? There's a great cartoon of Garfield where he's talking incessantly about himself. And the cartoon goes like this. But I'm tired of talking about myself. Why don't you talk about me for a while? And it's true of each one of us. We, we just like to be at the center. There was a daughter of a famous US president who talked about her father and said that her father liked to be the, the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He just liked to be the center of everything. And that's that pretender to Christ's supremacy in the heart of every single one of us. And that's why our third and final point is so beautiful. 
that, that Jesus is, the, is supreme over reconciliation. Our, our creator, our supreme creator, stepped into his creation. Why did he do that? And the key word is that word reconcile. It's in verse 20, through him to reconcile himself. It's there in verse 23. Now he has reconciled you. The, the, the word reconcile means to restore, to fix up, to heal broken relationships, to bring estranged people back together again, to bring people who can't stand each other back together, to restore that relationship, to be reconciled. It's a beautiful word. It requires forgiveness. It requires dealing with the hurts and destroying all the barriers. And it's hard and it's costly. But that's the reason why Jesus stepped into his creation to reconcile. I love verse 19, a glorious verse. Look at it. For God was pleased. Look at that word. He was pleased. It was God's pleasure, God's delight, God's joy. To do what? To have all of God's fullness dwell in Jesus. That was God's pleasure or delight, to put all his fullness into his Son, the Lord Jesus. So in Jesus we have the fullness of God's glory and the fullness of God's wisdom and the fullness of God's grace and his goodness and his power and his purposes, all seen in Jesus Christ. It dwells in Jesus. So when you see Jesus, you see God fully. And yet he became a man. Why? Verse 20, through Jesus, through his son, to bring about what we couldn't do is called reconciliation, to make us right with God, to end the hostilities, to bring peace. It is cosmic to reconcile all things, things on earth, things in heaven. Not talking about universalism, but it's sufficient for all people to be reconciled by making peace, bringing us peace with our maker, but it's costly through the blood shed on the cross, the painful death of his own precious son. But I think we know the method. I think we understand the cross, that at the cross, the penalty was paid, the price was paid, our sins are forgiven. We get all that. But I sometimes think we forget the motivation. Come back to verse 19. See the motivation? It was God's pleasure. I love that. Reconciliation is the pleasure of my God, the joy of my God. He longs, he delights. He finds it great pleasure to see reconciliation take place. If you grasp that, God's initiative, God's son, God's plan, God's pleasure to bring you back to himself through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's costly. Years ago, a husband and wife had been separated for years. They'd been estranged for years. They hated each other and they would not speak to each other. And tragically, one of their children died. And one day, the, the husband is at the grave of his son, standing, mourning. At the corner of his eyes, he sees his, he sees his wife walking towards the grave, and everything within him shudders. I, I can't talk to her. I don't want to talk to her. No, I have to talk to her. And so he walks towards his wife and puts out his hand to shake her hand, and she hugs him. And they walk back to the grave together, and they stand by the grave, and they're holding each other, and they're holding hands, and they go to a coffee shop, and over coffee they talk, and over time they heal those hurts, and they're brought back together as husband and wife, reconciled by the death of their son. 
And God in his mercy and his kindness and his pleasure has reconciled you to himself through his son. It's costly. We say in the prayer book service, Jesus made a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It is cosmic and yet it's personal. And this is where you come in and I come in. Do you spot the change of language in verse 21? We go from creation to church to cross. And in verse 21, once you personally were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior and you're supposed to put your own name into verse 21. Once Paul Dale was alienated from God, I was. I was distant from God. I was separated. I was estranged. I had no relationship with God. Once Paul Dale was an enemy in my mind, I really was. I thought I knew best. I thought God could not tell me what to do. I thought I was in charge. And once my evil behavior, and it was pretty evil, it separated me from my Father in heaven. So I'm in that verse, and so are you. And you've got to own that. You've got to own your sin. Without Christ, you were lost. And without Christ, you were alienated. That is the truth. The gospel is not about cleaning up behavior or changing, changing behavior patterns. It's about a new heart and a new mind that you cannot earn by yourself. Someone said you can put a pig in a tuxedo, but the pig nature will still make it want to wallow in mud. And that's true for each one of us. Have you heard of a lady hunting down that great British aristocrat who held those lavish dinner parties and invited George, George Whitfield to explain the gospel to people? One evening, she invited the Duchess of Buckingham and she heard Whitfield preach and she did not like it. The Duchess of Buckingham wrote this to Lady Huntington. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that call upon the earth. This is so highly offensive and insulting to me. I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with our high rank and our good breeding and it's so pompous and so stupid. If you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, well, my sins aren't that bad. Yes, they are. If you're thinking, oh, I'm basically a good person, no, no you're not. And if you're thinking, I, I, I don't need this, yes, you do, because we're all alienated from God without Christ. That is why our creator stepped into his creation, because you could not reconcile yourself. But he's done it all at the cross. There's a great big but in verse 22. But now God, his initiative, he has reconciled you, his works, by Christ's physical body, by his painful death on that cross. He's done it all. Nothing in your hand you bring, just to the cross you cling. And look at the outcome. It's incredible, verse 22, to present us, me, you, holy in his sight, pure, without blemish, and free from accusation. That's what's on offer. That's what we need, and we cannot get it without Christ. This beautiful picture of standing before our maker, our creator, our, our God and our judge, pure, perfect, holy, without blemish. And I know I'm not like that, but in Christ I am like that. And it is so mind-blowing that our creator, the head of this church, humbled himself to step into our creation in order to reconcile. It is so, so mind-blowing. 
So let me ask you this. If Christ is supreme over creation, if he's supreme over the church, if he's supreme over reconciliation, is he supreme over your life? Is he first in everything in your life? Your home life, your work life, your leisure life, your church life, your thoughts, your words, your actions. Is he, is he first in everything? Because he must be. No, he will be and he shall be. Christ supreme in everything. Let me pray. Give you a moment by yourself just to, to worship, to worship the Lord Jesus. Please don't stuff your head with information, just worship him for who he is. Our Lord Jesus Christ. We humbly bow at your feet in adoration and praise and awe. Our creator, our sustainer, our king, our lover, our friend who humbled himself, fully God yet fully man to take on that flesh so that we might be reconciled. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, would you fill our minds with just how majestic and supreme and glorious you are. Everything belongs to you. And so we commit our lives to you again, asking that you would be first in everything because yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. Lord, you are supreme. Spirit of God, help us to let him be supreme.